So we start this new season with a very difficult subject, and I've worked really hard to to expand this conversation as most as possible because it's something that is dear to my heart. Uh, a few months back, there was a shooting, and we're going to discuss that one, but we're right now recording this show as we just experienced the latest mass shooting on the other side of Texas, uh, opposite from where I am, and it seems that flags are now half-masked all the time around me. This makes me wonder when is this going to end, and we need to take a deep look and examine why do these shootings happen, these atrocities that are now common occurrences in our country. We are discussing today the Poway shooting. This was at a Chabad synagogue uh, close to San Diego. And um, when, when a place of worship that should be truly sacred, you know, in medieval times it was considered the house of God, a place of refuge for the weary of persecution. It's not even safe anymore to go pray with your fellow co-religionists. It's been 80 years since Kristallnacht happened. This is the Night of Broken Glass. Uh, it's a pogrom in November where Jews were attacked by uh, paramilitary forces and civilians in Nazi Germany, and the German authorities look without intervening. So I know there's a lot of debate of what should the government do to stop these shootings, but this is uh, you know religious persecution at its best, and it's just seen as, as a, another crazy guy uh, hurting people. When, when the shooter did this, there was an interesting article in the Washington Post, and I'll read it to you guys. It's in the religion section, and this is what prompted me to have the, the following show. It's by Julie Sosmer. It was on May 1st, 2019. The title is called, The Alleged Synagogue Shooter Was a Churchgoer Who Taught Christian Theology, Raising Tough Questions for Evangelical Pastors. Quote, Before he allegedly walked into a synagogue in Poway, California, and opened fire, John Ernest appears to have written a seven-page letter spelling out his core beliefs. The Jewish people, guilty in his view of faults ranging from killing Jesus to controlling the media, deserve to die. That his intention to kill Jews would glorify God. Days later, the Reverend Micah Edmondson read those words and was stunned. Quote, it certainly calls for a good amount of soul-searching. End quote. Said Edmondson, a pastor in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a small evangelical denomination founded to counter liberalism and mainland Protestantism. Ernest, a 19-year-old, was a member of the OPC congregation. His father was an elder. He attended regularly. And in the manifesto, the writer spewed not only in against Jews and racial minorities, but also cogent Christian theology. So the pastor read those seven pages trying to understand, quote, we can pretend as though we didn't have some responsibility for him. He was radicalized into white nationalism from within the very midst of our church, end quote, Emerson said. Ernest's actions on Saturday in Poway were, where he allegedly killed one Jewish worshiper and injured a rabbi, a child, and another synagogue goer, have spurred debate among evangelical pastors about the role of a certain stream of Christian theology in shaping the young man's worldview, which allegedly turned deadly on the last day of the Passover holiday. Christian leaders across denominations condemned the attack, saying violence against others and white supremacy are completely antithetical to Christian beliefs. Quote, Anti-Semitism and racist hatred, which apparently motivated the shooter, have no place within our system of doctrine. 
the OPC denomination said in a statement. But while some said Ernest's background in the church has nothing to do with the alleged crime and the church shouldn't have to answer for him, others called for a moment of reckoning. Some drew comparisons to Muslim communities as to account for terrorist attacks and worried that they could be in the same position when the shooter claims to be a faithful Christian. Quote, when there's an act of radical Islamic terror, somebody claiming they are motivated by their Islamic faith, if they were going to call upon moderates and Muslim communities to condemn those things, we should do the same. I wholeheartedly full stop condemn white nationalism. End quote. Chet Chad Wolf, an evangelical pastor in Fort Myers, Florida, who was one of the first to join in a heated debate online about how the attack reflects on evangelicalism. Quote, we should recognize that somebody could grow up in an evangelical church whose father was a leader and could somehow conflate the teachings of Christianity and white nationalism. We should be very concerned about that. End quote. At the church where Ernest belongs, Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church in the San Diego suburbs, members expressed shock and horror at the action allegedly committed by one of their own. The pastors hosted a discussion the day after the attack, after the Sunday service, and vowed to see how he could support the grieving synagogue nearby. Ernest's family, which includes five siblings, published a statement saying their son's beliefs do not match their faith and horrified them. In the manifesto, the writer said that he did not learn his white supremacist belief from his family. The manifesto, which circulated online after the attack and before, before numerous mainstream social media websites, attempted to remove it, reeled off grievances against Jewish people, many of which had little to do with religion. But that writer also spoke of biblical justification and of Christian belief throughout the document. The main themes were Jews' guilt in the biblical narrative and his own salvation. Several pastors said they found the manifesto's parts about salvation significantly more troubling, because when it came to what it said about salvation, they agreed with it. So as we can see, um, there's a debate now among these traditionalist Christians. Um, if you read the manifesto, it's just uh, horrendous and ridiculous, the kind of stuff that he brings up. I am going to share it with our audience, just so you know where uh, these things are coming from. It seems uh, Mel Gibson and Hitler would be very proud of him. I decided to get a hold of my uh, colleague and, and uh, acquaintance, uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who has um, who is part of that reformist um, church. He's a, he's also an evangelical. Um, I guess you can be both. Um, and he's um, he's a leader within his circles. It just seems that. Um, he would be a good guest. We've talked about anti-Semitism on his show. Ernest wrote this an open letter. Quote, My name is John Ernest, and I'm a man of European ancestry. The blood that runs in my veins is the same that ran through the English, Nordic, and Irish men of old. I'm a descendant of one of the original colonists of the Ranoki John Ernest. What happened to him, I do not know, nor does anyone. But I do know that he left his wife and son, James Ernest, back in England. The son shortly after made the same daring journey across the Atlantic to the New World. From my mother's side, I inherited the blood of very wealthy Yankees, intelligent, resourceful, uncompromising. From my father's side, I inherited the blood of poor southern farmers, intelligent, musically gifted, self-sufficient. A part of my ancestors lives within me in this very moment. They are the reason that I am who I am. 
their acts of bravery, ingenuity, and righteousness live on through me. Truly, I am blessed by God for such a magnificent bloodline. We read the manifesto of John Ernest, the shooter of the Bowie Chabad Synagogue near San Diego. The reason that we're reading this is because we're doing a show on his background and how he used religion to justify his um, attack. Uh, we're going to start up um, the second part of what was available online for his manifesto. Uh, starts off like this, quote, How does killing Jews help in the European race? The European race is doomed. What are you talking about? These Jews were innocent. Every Jew is responsible for the meticulous planned genocide of the European race. They act as a unit. And every Jew plays his part to enslave the other races around him, whether consciously or subconsciously. Their crimes are endless. For lying and deceiving the public through their exorbitant role in the news media, for using usury and banks to enslave nations and debt and control all finances for the purposes of funding evil, for their role in starting wars on a foundation of lies which have costed millions of lives throughout history, for the role in cultural Marxism and communism, for pushing degenerate propaganda in the forms of entertainment, for the role in feminism which has enslaved women in sin, for causing many to fall into the sin within their role in peddling pornography, for the role in voting for and funding politicians and organizations who use mass immigration to displace the European race, for their large role in every slave trade for the past 2,000 years, for promoting race mixing, for their cruel and bloody history of genocidal behavior, for their persecution of Christians of old, including the prophets of ancient Israel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, etc., members of the early church, Stephen, whose death at the hands of the Jews was both heart-wrenching and rage-inducing, Christians of modern-day Syria and Palestine, and Christians in white nations, for their degenerate and abominable practices of sexual perversion and blood libel, you're not forgotten, Simon of Trent. The horror that you and your countless children have endured at the hands of the Jews will never be forgiven. For not speaking about these crimes, for not attempting to stop the members of their race from committing them, and finally for the role in the murder of the Son of Man that is the Christ. Every Jew, young and old, has contributed to these. For these crimes, they deserve nothing but hell. I will send them there. End quote. I don't mean to make fun of him. Uh, the voice that I was using was kind of like the voice that you would think of someone who's um, malicious and uh, wickedly inspired uh, to write such uh, filth. And I, in the past, I've, I've used different voices to quote uh, anti-Semites throughout history when I did a reading of a book that talked about um, persecution of Jews. So... Uh, so it's just for dramatic effect, but as you can see, it's, it's you know, it's, oh, it's just a rambling of uh, of a lunatic. No, this is like very methodical. Why? Because if you uh, read any anti-Semitic um, blog or conspiracy theory online, it's the same old stuff. And they're he's surprised and he's complaining about what happened to supposedly. Uh, a Catholic child that it is a conspiracy and, and there's very there's no proof of it um, from the like 
1400s. So they're piggybacking on paranoia. Have uh, you guys heard of the uh, satanic uh, ritual paranoia of the 1980s? That stuff was happening all the time in medieval Europe. And now these people who supposedly care about history are bringing up stuff that nobody even knows about and trying to pin it on modern people that had nothing to do with it. And they had been persecuted you know, 80 years ago for similar um, slanderous accusations. So it's just, it's just sickening. And what, what I don't understand, and this is what I, why I contacted Dr. Heiser. Uh, he's a theologian. He's a speaker. It's like, how can people with those type of mentalities be um, members and involved in the local churches, uh, you know, down the street? So I, I brought all these issues up to Dr. Heiser, and I want to see what you guys think about this. So if you'd like to contact us, uh, mysticandskeptic at gmail.com, and let us know how, how like, I don't, I don't even know how people, what's the the reaction that I expect a certain reaction from the leaders of these communities but uh, so so this is what I presented to Dr. Heiser and this is how he responded um, uh, again we're talking about the the Poway California shoe shooting at a Chabad synagogue and uh, our guest is uh, Dr. Michael Heiser he's a professor of Hebrew Bible and Semitic language a scholar and resident for Logos Bible Software, an author, blogger, and fellow podcaster. Uh, we thank him for uh, participating in our show. And our topic, uh, for those who just started listening, is how faith and religious views um, can affect someone's thinking to go commit a, a crime. On April 27, 2019, um, on the Sabbath, an armed young man walked into the Jewish place of worship north of San Diego, and opened fire on the congregants, killing an Israeli young lady and injuring the rabbi as he was giving his last day Passover sermon. I got a hold of the suspect's manifesto, which was available on Twitter, uh, and it was captured by someone who who got it before um, the networking site took it down. In the manifesto, the shooter blamed Jews for the supposed meticulous planned genocide of the European race, uh, known as the white genocide conspiracy theory which has been spread by white nationalists and have this, and we have discussed it on the show. He said his shooters, uh, Brenton, Harris, Tarrant, and Robert Bowers for their roles in the respective shootings of Christchurch Mosque and the Pittsburgh Synagogue shooting, as well as Jesus, Paul, the Apostle, Martin Luther, Adolf Hitler, and Ludwig van Beethoven for being the figures who inspire him to commit the Poway shooting. He condemned President Trump as a pro-Zionist traitor. He also justified his actions by including Bible quotes in his manifesto. The quotes and allusions to biblical passages are the most disturbing. So I have Dr. Heiser here to discuss this because before this happened, uh, John Ernest, the 19-year-old, was an active member of the Escondido Orthodox Presbyterian Church, a traditional conservative Christian denomination. If mainstream Jews or Muslims had... Uh, one of their community members heard others and quote their scriptures to justify all America would demand accountability from these religious institutions. Dr. Heiser, is that the same for a Christian? According to the Washington Post article, the pastors have 
try to make sense of this, but I, I'm just I just don't understand. Help me understand why this happened. Uh, yeah, I, I would say that your 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 summary there uh, includes some assumptions that you know are quite understandable that you know the average person I think would would you know quite easily make you know uh, this 19 year old steeped in the Christian worldview he was a member of this church my first response to that is big deal uh, in, in Presbyterian churches you know you're you become a member of the church you know when you're baptized as an infant and then you're confirmed at some point you know usually when you hit teenage years or something like that um, that doesn't mean you're listening to anything in the church. That means you go through the motions, the the, the community rituals. Um, you know, I've I've met Jews who were you know confirmed to use a Christian term, but you know the bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah. When I was teaching at UW Madison, for instance, I mean, it, I, I was honestly shocked by this. Uh, but I, I I found myself in a summer one time teaching a room full. It was about forty or fifty, and everybody in there was Jewish, and they were. It was called the Senior Scholars Program. So everybody in there is about, you know, their retirement age. Um, and I did this for three summers and, and loved it. But the, the, the first summer I was there, I, I, you know, discovered that the whole, you know, everybody in the classroom was, was Jewish except for me. And, and naturally, I was doing something Bible-related. I had people in that class, and I, I'm not kidding. I, I sort of wish I was, but I'm not. But I had people in that classroom ask me who Adam and Eve were. I had people ask me if there are books in their Bible other than the Torah. You know, so it, it that is, I'm going to use that as an, an analogy. You can't assume anything about what a person really knows. So there's a problem with the assumption there. The the second issue is, you know, I don't know anything about this Presbyterian church. I mean, if they're Orthodox Presbyterian, they're not they're not teaching that it's a good idea to go kill Jews, and they're not teaching that the Jews, you know, are responsible for everything. There's probably a bunch of supersessionists in there. Um, you know, think <clears throat> believe the the church has replaced you know Israel as the people of God and. It depends how you define that as to whether it's coherent in terms of what what the New Testament is talking about. But I'll tell you where this, this person got this. He got it from the internet. He got this from where you find it. it. It's where it's ubiquitous. I mean, this is this is the problem not within just within the Christian community, but it's honestly it's a problem, you know, really within any community. Um, the the, the days of your your parents and your religious leadership being the gatekeepers to not only um, what is said about their faith or their religion, uh, but basically what is said about anything. The, 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 the days of you having a small number of gatekeepers that filter the knowledge uh, to the people under their care are over, and they've been over for a number of years. The, it, it is it is a wild, wild west of <clears throat> massive amounts of information. Most of it garbage, and the, the the worst of it, 
is going to is going to be the kind that takes touch points, you know, nuggets, you know, in the case of religious stuff, you know, re- religious texts. And, you know, they have a bunch of data points and dots, and then they connect them for you. And th- this is how not just religious conspiracies, specifically anti-Semitic conspiracies, do what they do. It's also how alternative worldviews, like the ancient aliens community or the flat earth community, or, you know, fill in the blank, they, they, will, they will look at religious texts or other documents and pull out things that are said and then start just stringing data points together in a bunch of non sequiturs and there you go you know we have a a worldview we have you know some some philosophy or something like that so this is a huge problem again i'm not opposed to you know free speech or you know free public access to information but young people especially are just imbibing and absorbing just a lot of nonsense on a daily basis and the people again under whose care they they might be could could be completely appalled at what's really running through that person's head but they either never have the conversation because the person doesn't want it or if the person does initiate a conversation unfortunately you know they get dismissed they get just get told well don't read or watch that nonsense you know they the, the discussion just doesn't happen, you know. There, there, there's no, there's no one there to, you know, to kind of I- inject some sanity into what's being said. And it's just, it ain't going to get any better. You know, I'm, I'm sorry for being pessimistic, but I, my view is that it's not going to get any better because it's just there. You can't put the genie back in into the bottle uh, when it comes to this thing we call. And, and start taking this information or the access to the information seriously and saying, look, you're going to run into this. Let's spend some time. And if it has to be in church, you know, fine, you know. But we, we need to spend some time unpacking this and, and showing you how, how really terrible the thinking is and, and how misguided the thinking is uh, on this, you know, any given subject. So, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, again, I don't look at this person's membership, if their affiliation. That that basically means nothing to me. Um, you know, I I have spent you know twenty years you know teaching lots of undergrads. They grew up in church. Oh, they're Christians. They have memberships and things, and they don't know squat. Okay, you can put in a thimble. You know what they really know about scripture. They know the culture. They've acclimated to the culture. They know they know to say the right things, but they just basically don't know a whole lot. And again, I don't know if my experience with the Jewish community at, in Wisconsin was anomalous, but I was I was shocked. Maybe because they were adults, you know, I was I was shocked, and I thought maybe with an older generation there would have been, you know, something more serious going on. But again, I don't I don't know what was going on in any of their individual, you know, synagogues. I mean, I. I've met plenty of Jewish people that have a, a really deep knowledge of, you know, what their scriptures say. But again, I, it, it taught me to just make no assumptions, and then again to map over, you know, what I see coming out of churches now, just generally, 
Um, they're not, you know, it, uh, on a busy week in church stuff, they get maybe an hour a week. Even if you have two services, you get 30 minutes of pop. Okay, an hour a week out of 167, if I'm doing, I'm, I'm terrible at math, but the, the number of, of hours a week that are there, you, if you spend one hour on Bible stuff, you can spend 20 years there, you're not going to learn much. Chances are it's going to be a lot of repetition, too, because that, that's another problem altogether. So the context for this, um, you know, I think is unfortunately all too normal. But I think where this person is getting the information and the terrible thinking, I think is pretty obvious what the source is. I think that's the internet. Well, so so we've done multiple shows about anti-Semitic ideas and, and the way that people put together conspiracy theories. But the most shocking aspect of, of his manifesto was a particular uh, allusion to a verse. And you're famous for giving people context and the tools to be able to think critically about the Bible and be able to interpret things from its original context. So one thing he said that uh, I would like to to get the, the correct interpretation um, based on it, uh, on your perspective, is he said um, that the Jews killed the prophets. And, and then he goes and they kill a bunch of other people. And it seems like he was alluding to Matthew 23, 37 through 38 and you know I've, I've been trying to wrap my mind around that it well I boy I I could I could be a bit sarcastic here but I mean I want to treat this this person seriously he, he probably did get it from Matthew um, but where the question to ask is where does Matthew get it and the answer is the Hebrew Bible I mean, the, the, the historical books of the Hebrew Bible are full of what you know scholars would call the prophetic critique of fellow Jews. Even other prophets, like Jeremiah 22 and 23. Um, the, the Hebrew Bible is filled with... You know, if, if you'll pardon the a bit of an anachronistic term here, but it's filled with Jewish leaders being critical of, of other Jews. Um, it's it's I don't know. Uh, again, I, I could be a little sarcastic and say this this kid and, and maybe his he never even heard a sermon on it or, or had no exposure to it at all. But uh, chances are he probably never read the historical books or had anybody teach him the content of the historical books or the prophets because that's where Matthew gets this. He's not making this up. Matthew isn't. You know, he's he's drawing on a a track record of you know of violence, you know, of Jews against Jews and it worked, you know, it could really work both ways. You know, all the way really from the period of the judges all the way, you know, through the divided monarchy, you you could have apostate uh Jews, you know, Jews who were you know, worshiping other gods or something like that, killing off the prophets. But then you also have, you know, judges, you know, raised up to get rid of the bad guys, like, you know, Jehu or something like that, or one of the judges in the book of Judges. And they do the same thing. So the, the Old Testament, again, the Hebrew Bible is just filled with this. So to, to say that, that this is Matthew, on one hand, yeah, 
Yeah, Matthew does allude to this. But the question to ask, again, is the one that few people ask. Where does Matthew get it? The answer is the Hebrew Bible. Now, does that, does that mean that either the Jewish community you know, would be justified today in, in dealing with its opponents you know, with violence? No, because for one thing, we're not a theocracy. You know, for another thing, e- even some of those actions, um, you know, sort of skip the ethical component, you know, of, of how Israelites were supposed to relate to each other, you know, and all this sort of thing. And the same thing goes for the Christian community. You know, we're, we're not a theocracy. The theocracy, if as I, I speak as a Christian now, someone with the New Testament in mind, and, I, and the New Testament draws consistently on the Old Testament, including for this thought, but the theocracy was planned by God to be obsolescent. It was planned to go away. How do we know that? We know that from the prophets, because the prophets talk about Gentiles being brought in and becoming priests in Jerusalem, you know, to the Most High. I mean, the, the, that was never the end point, you know, the planned end point of what God was, about, was going to do. He was going to create this thing that later in the New Testament gets called the church. Okay? He could have called it something else. It just means assembly community. But it was a circumcision neutral thing. And you and you will read, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, this vision, you know, especially latter chapters of Isaiah, you'll read about this vision of the community of God being uh, inclusive. You know, so you know, there's really nothing here that's uniquely Christian. There's nothing here that, you know, says, well, <clears throat> you know, we ought to behave like the judges and prophets of old in a theocratic setting. There's no legitimacy for that. But again, I, I can sit here and say that because I've I've tracked this material a lot. But the average person in, in a church is barely exposed to any of it. But they'll read a verse somewhere, either on their own or in some document on the internet, and then they'll they won't even ask you know, the most obvious interpretive questions about it. So it's really unfortunate. Again, I'm, I tend to be a bit of a pessimist here that I don't think it's going to get any better because you can't put the genie of the internet back into the bottle. So Mr. Heister has just corroborated one of the concerns I've had that unsubstantiated accusations against Jews are very common in the Christian world. There's a website called tectonics.org Tecton Education About Jedic's Ministry, which asked the question, did the Jews kill their own prophets? The author actually says that there's a passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 14 through 15, where Paul says the following, quote, For you also have suffered like this of your countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus Christ and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men. End quote. He says that the, this charge made by Paul is virtually unsupported by scriptural evidence. The way to get around it, he says that there are books that were written by prophets that are not that well known, and they were lost to us, and there it talks about how prophets were um, killed by fellow Jews. The issue with this is that it's just another way of stretching historical truth to fit their theological perspective. 
one of the most um, difficult passages is the passage in Matthew, Matthew 23, 37, where Jesus says, quote, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets and stoned those who sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hand gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing, end quote. So in this passage, Jesus is making an accusation that is also no, not easily validated. I'm going to quote the two verses that some people might be talking about from the Hebrew Bible. According to 2 Chronicles chapter 24, verse 20-21, this is from the New King James Version. This is one of the passages that Christians use as evidence for both Jesus and Paul being correct about the accusation of Jews killing fellow Jews in the time of the prophets. Quote, Then the Spirit of God came upon Zechariah, the son of Jephadiah, the priest, who stood above the people and said to them, Thus says God, Why do you transgress the commandments of the Lord, so that you cannot prosper? Because you have forsaken the Lord, He also has forsaken you. So they conspired against him, and at the command of the king they stoned him with stones in the court of the house of the Lord. End quote. The first passage. Second passage is Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 20 through 23. This is from the New International Version. Quote, now Uriah, son of Shemaiah, from Kiriath-Jerim, was another man who prophesied in the name of the Lord. He prophesied the same things against the city and this land as Jeremiah did. When the king Jehoiakim and all his officers and officials heard his words, the king was determined to put him to death. But Uriah heard of it and fled in fear to Egypt. King Jehoiakim, however, sent Elnathan, son of Akbor, to Egypt along with some other men. They brought Uriah out of Egypt and took him to King Jehoiakim, who had him struck down with a sword and his body thrown into the burial place of the common people. End quote. And then there's a passage in Life of Elijah where it talks about many prophets being killed by the Phoenician queen Jezebel. So here we have the passages that are used to justify this hatred of Jews. Uh, you can go down the line and create other historical cases but this is where the idea of Jews killing their own prophets comes from. I don't think it's a fair accusation, but it is a theological one made by Christians and by this individual that we're talking about. We now return to our interview with Dr. Michael Heiser regarding the Poway shooting that happened at a Chabad synagogue in May, and we're trying to figure out how is it possible that a church uh, member and faithful Christian could have committed such a crime. The issue is this. Um, it's, it happens with the Muslim communities. Uh, the Muslim community would say, well, we're not teaching um, that people should do destructive things. They are taking the their writings and interpreting them by themselves. But the question always goes back to, what is and that's and that's a little bit misleading on the part of the Muslim community in, in this respect. Um, and and I know not all Muslims are are theocrats. I mean, I follow some on Twitter that I, I I really respect that are that are trying to to be voices of of sanity and reason. And 
uh, like Zooty Jass or somebody like that. Um, it's a little misleading in that the difference is, is that you do have a significant wing of Islam who is, which is theocratic. They want a caliphate. Okay, so it, the, the Quran is not this neutral document that, oh, nobody, you know, nobody in organized Islam thinks this way. No, actually, a lot of people do, um, even, if it's, even if it's, you know, 5%. I mean, it's just a numbers game. You know, I, I'm making these numbers up now, but I, it's probably, I'm sure it's more. But if there's, a, if there's 100 million Muslims in the world, I'm sure it's closer to a billion, but I'll, I'll lowball it. You know, 10% of that is 10 million half of that is five million. that's a lot of people um you know it it's not quite the same i don't know any i don't know any group in christianity other than the white supremacist group which again this is a conspiratorial hermeneutic that really isn't born out of the new testament the new testament is used for ammunition but i don't know anybody in the organized christian community that other christians would say yes that's a christian denomination that, you know, says we should be, you know, harming or, or harming Jews or, or being anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, there, there are passages in the New Testament, we could talk about a few of those if, if you want. But on, on a denominational level, um, it's not really the same as what, what the Muslims have to deal with. Uh, because the, the small percentage is... They are theocratic. They do want a caliphate. And, it, and if you're a fellow Muslim that disagrees with you, they will kill you. And so there's a serious intimidation factor. Even the, even the, a lot, the Muslims who just, they just want to live their life. You know, they're like anybody else. Um, they're afraid. And, and you know, it, it's hard to blame them if, if they're living in a culture where they don't have certain legal protections or, or you know, some kind of, you know, protection mechanism. It, it's hard to, it, you know, it's understandable that they could remain, you know, silent, even if they're a silent majority and and let the theocrats do their thing. So it's not quite the same thing, even though that 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 sort of religious equivalence or cultural equivalence, you know, is, is often made. It really isn't quite, it's not really the same. And it's that theocratic element. I feel that we miss each other sometimes when we come from different perspectives. My dialogue with Dr. Heiser started before this conversation that is being played today. Uh, we started emailing regarding this because he had a sincere interest in finding out about what this accused um, shooter had to say or what his manifesto said. So I sent him a copy of it and he responded in relation to where would someone get these types of ideas. For Christians to say that someone who holds these strong views must be a white nationalist or some type of neo-Nazi, it's interesting because they consider themselves Christians. And if you read the literature of the New Testament, both the Gospels and the letters of Paul, the response from Christians is always like, well, they're Jews themselves. So if they criticize other Jews, that's part of the game of being involved in religious discussions. Dr. Heiser claims that this individual, Ernest, was filtering the New Testament through a 19th century racial theory and the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which is a forgery. Some of his ideas come from an author named Paul Haupt, pre-Nazi author from the 19th century, who was an anti-Semitic biblical scholar. 
So this has been brewing for a long time. This long discussion that I've had with Dr. Heiser always goes back to their theological differences between Christians and Jews regarding our understanding of the Bible. And the type of fanaticism that leads to this type of hatred and bigotry is the one that starts seeing people as other and, and hating them for their supposed views because it's assuming the Jews are as organized as they claim and that they all have similar perspective. And when Christians misunderstand the Jewish community, they create a false narrative that leads them to, to these ideas. Christian authors, ministers, missionaries are often ready to attack Judaism with only a surface knowledge of this vast tradition. So we go back to the interview with Dr. Heiser. I'm sorry, Dr. Heiser, but it's, it's not the same now, but it has been the same throughout the centuries because uh, the same Bible verses that this young man was using have been used by inquisitors, by Catholic uh, fanatics, by Protestant fanatics, by people through the century. Yeah, and I would and I would use again I would use those terms as well. Um, you know, I, I I am one again. I don't care what label you take. You know, the, the the church at Rome, and again, this isn't a slam on on modern Catholics today, but it, it's a it's a historical reality. The church in Rome, they weren't doing theology. Okay, they they weren't doing exegesis of the New Testament, and poring over the text and wondering what it says. You know, they somehow would miss things like the Sermon on the Mount. They're, they're doing theocratic politics. The Church of Rome is a political institution, and it, and it was since the 4th century. It, it's what screwed it up. You know, Jesus never advocated the, the merging of church and state. In fact, he, he advocated the exact opposite. But when you merge the church and the state... Then the, then the church and its teachings become a political tool. And that's, a, that's absolutely what, what happened with Catholicism. And even the Reformation context, you know, Calvin's Geneva, Luther's Germany, because they, they, they derive from, you know, a Catholic context. You know, this is, this is what, uh, even, even in a Protestant uh, Reformation context, you have a lot of this happen. Because that's the model that they're that they're used to. They're used to a church-state marriage. Again, this is something Jesus explicitly denied: render unto Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Nowhere did he advocate a church-state. And when you marry those two things, this is what you what you get is you get medieval Catholicism. You you get you get baptizing political persecution with religion. And and to me, that is not. New Testament teaching. It's not New Testament Christianity. I don't care what label you stick on it; it isn't. But if when you, when you look in the in the you know back at, in hindsight in history, you're right. There is a lot of it. There is a lot of it, and it you know it it should be, it should have been, and it should be now absolutely condemned, and it should never be repeated. But you know. You can't undo, you know, history either. The Catholic Church, you know, nowadays isn't running around, you know, advocating this, thankfully. Uh, at least, I guess, publicly or whatever. Maybe there's somebody in there that is, but uh, this is what you get. This is what you get when you violate the New Testament teaching. That's what you get. You know, you ignore Jesus' admonition to keep these things separate. And when you don't, it grows into this monster you know, that, that is horrific. It did horrific things.
I have to respond to Dr. Heiser's claim that Jesus never refused um, state and church. In those times, uh, religion and national sovereignty were always fused together. That's why the Israelites fought against the Romans several times to get them out of their land so they could worship God freely. And they fought the uh, Greeks and, and other kingdoms for the same reason. So this idea that Jesus was free love hippie who did not have any national aspirations or religious institutions on in mind flies in the face of the New Testament where he talks about governmental institutions such as the temple and going there to uh, cleanse yourself or to show if a miracle happened to the priest. He shows regard towards the uh, leaders of that time by saying that they sit in the seat of Moses. He has stories about people giving taxes to the temple. He also uh, partakes of temple festivities, uh, even though he makes a demarcation between being uh, subject to the Roman Empire. He's always talking about the kingdom of God. And what is the kingdom of God? A theocratic kingdom, just like the one that Moses enacted in, at Mount Sinai. I don't know uh, where he was going with this, but it seems a little disingenuous to portray Jesus as some type of revolutionary against the state. He was a revolutionary against what he thought to be corrupt leaders from what we uh, gather from the historical record. But his revolution was not based on violent overthrow. It was meant as changing the hearts and minds of the uh, common folk. But there was always this tension among him and the apostles regarding bringing back theocratic kingdom that every apocalyptic and eschatological group of that time was waiting for. And even the ones that weren't eschatological wanted some type of freedom of worship. The Christians, the Muslims, and the Jews of today are looking back in an idyllic time when either King David, Jesus, some type of Messiah, or... Um, descendant of Muhammad or uh, other religious figure, can regain what has been lost through the centuries, God being supreme and the people uh, partaking of the worship of God in some type of uh, monarchic political reality. Again, it seems uh, convenient to, to change Jesus. They even call him a king. What is a king? If he was proclaimed by his followers as the king of the Jews, that means that He's the king of the worshippers of the God of Israel, who are all members of a theocratic state, and he is the religious and political leader of those individuals. And even if the kingdom is a spiritual kingdom, it still holds connotations of there's rules, there's certain covenantal responsibilities from the members, and that is in relation to other kingdoms and other powers in the land of Israel, pre-Roman Palestine, as it was called, after the destruction of the temple and the banning of Jews from Jerusalem and the Holy Land. Well, it happened during Nazi Germany with the churches being working with, with the Nazis. It happened during uh, a lot of different periods in Christian history. But what what I'm, I'm giving you an opportunity is to, to help people... Because one way to look at someone like this, like he's just crazy, he's going to uh, look for issues to try to justify his actions, 
But there is, in, in the study of radicalization, there is a point where a person can turn around, when someone can, can actually be saved, per se, from uh, heading in that direction. And I think that that's where, you know, they've been working with imams and, and with, you know, trying to reform supremacists and stuff like that, and say, well, if, if they would have had a chance to look at it from a different perspective or to be more faithful to the source or something like that, then the person wouldn't have kept on going and building up their premise for violence. Yeah, it's, it, it is kind of interesting. Now, I don't, I don't have you have you read anything just recently and I can't remember where I saw this. Um I, I bookmarked it but I haven't read it yet. Um there was something online about uh sort of testimonies of white supremacists, like what turned them around. Did, did, have you read any of that? Because I, I, I know like in the I've heard of different stories, but go ahead. Yeah, I know I know in the in the Muslim community, I mean for those for whom this is totally intentional i mean they start they start them from very young you know you, you know almost as soon as they can talk you know they're, they're they're teaching them you know radical ideology um you know and i i mean i've read a few testimonies in the islamic world you know where it was basically relationships you know with with believers in some cases some you know some fairly dramatic things but i haven't i haven't read the same thing for the white supremacist community i'm just wondering in your experience, do they do they tactically do the same thing? Do they start people really young, or is it something along the way? Well, you're familiar with the Westboro Baptist uh, group, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, so they're an example of how you know, and we can talk politics, but people who are afraid of others, they build up their their premise based on. You know the the homosexual community is destroying America, or the Jews, or do you know do you know if Westboro is is an anti-Semitic group, or is it just the gay thing with them? Here, Dr. Heiser sets me up for a failed attempt at explaining how when you start attacking one group, it's really easy to go down the line and attack everybody else. And people can debate regarding morality and views regarding. Um, sexuality, but it's really easy to take an idea and then run with it. So if the Bible uh, condemns some type of behavior, it's easy for people to jump between we don't agree with that, we don't accept that, to these people don't deserve to live. And what I'm asking Dr. Heiser is for Christians to renounce any type of bigotry, because if you claim that your religion is right, why can't you do it in a loving and a compassionate way and treat people with uh, respect and then maybe you can uh, change their minds? Uh, when it comes down to anti-Semitism, no matter what the Jews do, even if they accept Christianity, they are persecuted and hated for their innate evil. And this is coming straight from the Inquisitors and Nazi Germany where Jews who had no semblance of Judaism or Jewish life were still persecuted um, out of this blind hatred. And when it comes down to anti-Semitic and anti-Jewish readings of religious texts, this is where we need to work together to to avoid that. If you listen to what is coming on the interview, he discusses theological differences between Jews and Christians, 
but it's just is an easy jump from a theological condemnation to a racial condemnation to some type of way to tr address the um, the elephant in the room that comes from someone not having the right allegiance and if you talk again about church and state now you have individuals demanding allegiance to their king and their religious figure and if you don't do that then your life is not worth living back to the conversation with Dr. Michael Heiser regarding the Bowie synagogue shooting committed by John Ernest and in the last episode he asked me what did I know about the Westboro Baptist Church it's interesting because they are a very well-known group of provocateurs he was asking me if they had anti-semitic hatred just like this young man did it is documented by the Anti-Defamation League that in some of their articles on their website such as one published on October 6, 2011, the Westboro Baptist Church uh, describes the Holocaust as God's punishment on the Jews. The founder of, or the leader of the group, uh, says the following on Westboro Baptist Church uh, frequently asks questions, what do you think of the Jews? Quote, the only true Jews are Christians. The rest of the people who claim to be Jews aren't, and they are nothing more than typical impenitent sinners. The vast majority of Jews support derogatory term for homosexuals. In fact, it is the official policy of Reformed Jews to support same-sex marriage. Of course, there are Jews who still believe God's law, but most of them have even departed from that. It doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile as long as you believe in Christ. End quote. That was November 17, 2006. And then in an article by the Information League, they also quote uh, the leader. Articles called Extremism in America's Westboro Baptist Church in their own words, on Jews, from October 11, 2011. Quote, Homosexuals and Jews dominated Nazi Germany. The Jews now wander the earth, despised, smitten with moral and spiritual blindness by a divine judicial stroke. And God has smitten Jews with a certain unique madness. Jews thus perverted out of all proportion for their numbers energized the militant sodomite agenda. Jews are the real Nazis. End quote. We later discuss how it's um, theologically acceptable to condemn different groups. But again, I'm trying to get to the point of can the Christian community make sure to condemn people like them so then there's no confusion. People know that Westboro Baptists, anti-Semitic groups, white nationalists, Cuckoo's Klan, and people like that are offshoots, heretical, or unfaithful witnesses to the Christian message and that it's unacceptable to hold those views. It's taken a lot for major Christian denominations to make those statements and there are some that are now being couched under political rhetoric, some negative views towards Jews. We return to our interview with Dr. Michael Heiser regarding what could cause a devout Christian to hold so much hatred in his heart and hurt other people because they don't believe what he does. And we're talking about the Poway synagogue shooter, John Ernest, and this happened in April of this year well you know some people like this is my issue like you were saying that the catholic church um, became this monster but the catholic the traditional catholic church is actually very consistent with their theology their theology teaches that unless you believe a certain way you are going to hell and then the people that they see as the enemy are the ones who deny that so the first ones in line are the jews then the pagans and then everybody else so in the same way a westboro baptist group 
Right, but there's 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 not an advocacy to send people to health by killing them. I mean, you can you can disagree theologically. You know, a, a, a Jew, and again, some of the Jews I know would would certainly, you know, put the hand up in the air here and say Mike is just completely nuts and he's misguided. I, I understand that, you know, because of you know the, the person of Christ and what others a, a fundamental disagreement there. You know, but but they're not looking at me you know, thinking that I deserve some sort of physical punishment for it. So, so your, your question takes an obvious thing that yes, there's, there's, there are diametrically oppositional views here. And in the case of religion, you know, it, it, it can, it can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be this heaven or hell question. Okay. That's true. That's, that's transparently obvious, but your question, the way it was worded, sort of assumes that there's an advocacy element that attaches to it, that we've either got to send the opposition there or they deserve some physical punishment, like, like we want this to happen to them. And, and oh, I, I hope we get to be the ones to do it. Let me give you an example from history. So my ancestors are um, Jews from Spain and the the Roman... Oh, wow. Well, there, there you go with the Inquisition. I mean, they... Well, but, but real... Your ancestors would have suffered greatly, right? So, so the the Roman Catholic king said we can't have the Jews around because they're being a bad influence to the Jews who were forcibly converted to Catholicism, and then they created the Inquisition to hunt down heretics who they saw were returning to Judaism. So, so the, the so it was a life or death, right? Because and and why did they why did they do that? because they married the church to the state. And so the solution to that is to actually actually uh, pay attention to and live by New Testament theology, which says you shouldn't marry the church to the state. But again, you know, once you do that, and by the time, you know, that time period, I mean, you've got centuries just build up accrued to this, this unbiblical thing, okay, this, let's just call it a non-New Testament thing, Yeah, it does have a life of its own. People don't know any better because the Catholic Church also, you know, forbade the independent study of Scripture where somebody might find out, hey, we screwed this up. You know, so again, these are all historical realities. Um, That's, again, certainly obvious. But what they are is they're, they're not New Testament theological realities. They're not something that derives from a careful study of the text. There's something that derives from history, you know, from the, the, the notion. And again, I'm not saying it was sinister at the beginning, you know, because Christians were persecuted a lot. Oh, isn't it great that Theodosian, you know, legalized Christianity, made it the official religion. Now we don't, you know, we don't have to worry about our kids getting sold into brothels anymore. And, you know, I mean, I, mean, I get it. I, I get it that that would have been a good thing. But there, there were just people who, again, ignored the, the admonition of Jesus to keep these things separate and married them. And, and now we have to live with the results, whether it be a historical perspective or, or, or somebody that's imbibing in the same thinking now. You know, it's a, it's a terrible thing. But, you know, what, what, someone, what someone does, you know, in, in the name of their religion, you know, doesn't have to be an accurate reflection of what in this case one of their sacred books would say you know what it what it takes is it takes influence it takes power you know by the historically speaking you got these two things married you know if if you want to you know 
live, eat, have a job, you know, get married, have kids, you know, and, and not be living under tyranny, you know, most people are just going to go along with that. And, and again, when you take the knowledge source away, you know, that you forbid people from actually, you know, reading the scriptures, you know, whether they can, assuming they can read, but, you know, the, the, the Bible was on the list of forbidden books, you know, at one point in Catholicism. When you do stuff like that, your interest is not in people learning the New Testament, okay? Your interest is you listen to me and we're going to maintain power. And this is what you're supposed to believe. And if you don't believe, we're going to excommunicate you because we've taught another false doctrine that the church is the dispenser of grace. The church is the one that sends you to heaven. None of this is New Testament. These are all power mechanisms using, again, in this case, the New Testament, to create a political theology. And unfortunately, it worked pretty well, and it's, it's been around for a long time. And this is one of the, the sort of extreme results, you know, thankfully not so much anymore, but, but still, yes, it, it, it does happen. Like with, you know, again, the guy you opened the show with, but it's just awful across the board. It's awful thinking. It's, 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 I, I would be willing to call it just a slander of the new Testament. I think it's a slander of the Hebrew Bible to use the, the, the prophetic, you know, stuff, you know, what's going on in, you know, during the monarchy and the divided monarchy I think that would be a slander of the text. That, that isn't what the text is, is supposed to tell us to do in terms of our life. Um, I, I just see bad thinking everywhere I look here that is entrenched culturally in history, you know, unfortunately. So, Dr. Heiser, if one of your students came up to you and he was ranting about how the Jews have messed up the world, but then he went into they, they killed Stephen, they're killing uh, Palestinian and Syrian Christians, they are um, destroying the the moral fabric of America. H how would you counter, or even would you wouldn't waste your time? Am, am I am I in a good mood or a bad mood when I encounter that? <laughs> but but the question is, if if most people say, well, I don't want to waste my time with a crazy guy, uh, isn't there like a responsibility to, to kind of try to gear the person in the right way? Yes, there is. There is, and I. This is why I don't know if you're familiar with my Middle Earth analogy, but but I am a scholar that does spend time in what I affectionately call Christian Middle Earth, where you have a lot of um, you have a lot of misguided thinking. It, it's not all equally bad, or you know, equally tortured exegesis, but there's a lot of goofy stuff, and you know, I've spent the better part of 20, 25 years in that for that reason. Now, I don't spend all my time there because it would probably make me unhinged. Uh, it's just the kind of place that, you know, when I, when I visit, you know, the, the this sort of world of popular Christianity that, that gets fed off the Internet, you know, it's one of those do I laugh or cry, you know, kind of experiences. But I'm in there a lot because I do think scholars generally should serve the public interest and in particular – This is destructive. You know, when you see something destructive going on, yes, you have a moral obligation to try to disabuse this person as well as you can, you know, of, of terrible thinking. And in this case, it's very obvious to see, you know, where this can lead. Um, so, yeah, yeah, we, we should be doing that. 
but you're you're also correct. Most of the time, it just gets written off to the periphery. You know, it's we got a bunch of crazy people out here, and you know, I I got better things to do, or I can only have an impact on on one crazy person. What good is that going to do? Uh, again, that these are just excuses. I, I really do think that we should again be be doing what we can in whatever place we're at, you know, where whatever our station is, you know, to try to do something, you know, and in my case, I have a YouTube channel. I mean, we, we try to bite into, again, the crazy topics. You know, I, I do a little bit of podcasting about it. I, I, I do interviews on, on, you know, weird shows, you know, like coast to coast AM and stuff like that. I've, I've been doing that for 20, 25 years. And yes, it, it, you know, I, I probably want to want to cry more than laugh. Um, it's very frustrating, but I think we, we still need to at least take a shot at it, you know, just try to do something useful here. And, and the reason we're taking a shot at it right now is because uh, going back to the example of the uh, – there's a documentary where they have a, a white supremacist ch- a chaplain who prays with the, the men before they go and protest, and, you know, we had the – Charlottesville uh, situation uh, a year and a half ago, and then now there's people who are piggybacking on each other. Um, going back to uh, the struggles with the with the um, Christendom as as a, as a, as a theocratic kingdom, a lot of these shooters are saying that they're uh, reclaiming the legacy of Christendom, and that they're the new crusaders, and that they're the new founders of of Mm-hmm. All right. Let's let let's let's revive and restore what this terrible idea of marrying the church and the state. Now they don't put it that way. They think it's a great idea, but that's that's what they're that's what they want. They want to marry the you know their their uh, understanding of their faith. Specifically to, yeah, in some cases, nationalism. In some cases, it's bigger than nationalism. Uh, you know, it's more ethnic driven or whatever, you know, racial theory, this and that. But at the bottom, you know, the underlying all of this is let's revive and restore a really crappy idea. You know, a, an idea that specifically Jesus said, no, don't do that. <laughs> you know, that's where they're at. But, but, you know, and you ask, well, why do they do that? Are they just dumb? Well, I think in many respects, they don't look. If the leadership does look, what they're fueling this because, you know, they want power. Why, why, do, why does any group, you know, I think this is a, a sort of a post-Babel, Tower of Babel impulse. This impulse for utopian, you know, utopianism. When people forget, well, what, you know, to have a utopia, what do you do with dissent? You have to crush it. Okay, but but people want their vision of utopia so badly uh, that they're willing, you know, to have other people crushed, and they're going to demonize those other people that they don't like, that they know they're going to have to crush anyway. You know, this this gives me a reason to crush them. You know, know, people, as as Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful and wicked. You know, above all things, you know, this is this is the human condition. You know, the, the this it's depravity. Again, it's what you'd call in the Hebrew Bible. It would, it would be depravity, and one of the one of the the main sort of ways that depravity shows itself is a hunger and a lust for power over other people. 
And this is what they want. This is what this is what drives the bus: a sense of superiority, a sense of wanting power over another group. You know, maybe there's a sense of desperation that there's so much in the world going on in the world that I don't like. I have to find some rationale, somebody to blame for it. And so, you know, well, we'll pick this group or that group. You know, but it, it's all in the name of of justifying getting what they want and controlling and dominating other people. It's wicked. You know, it, it, it is the very antithesis of, of Christ's model of, of a servant, and, and his model of servanthood was based on the Old Testament concept of imaging God. This is why you have the New Testament writers take the concept of imaging God and apply it to Jesus, you know, the, about being a disciple of his and, and imaging him because he is the, quote-unquote, express, the perfect image of, of God. I mean, it, it all goes back to, you know, to this kind of, of thinking, this is what this is what Jesus wanted, you know, that to to have the good character of God. Um, but you know, that doesn't give you power. You know, it, it, it led to Jesus, you know, saying things like, you know, turn the other cheek, and the meek shall inherit the earth, and you know, all this all this other you know stuff that these white supremacists and, and others that want to use the New Testament they they skip that stuff just like they're skipping Jesus saying, you know. Let, let's keep let's keep the, the believing community, the church, and Caesar separate. It, it just doesn't serve their purpose. In the book Jesus of Nazareth by Joseph Ratzinger, one of the, our last popes, he exonerates the Jews for the killing of Jesus and only blames the leaders of the first century Jewish community. That's interesting since it always goes back to we need a religious figure to say what makes sense, what is historically the case, that the Jewish people had nothing to do with the killing of Jesus. Christians would say that it was a crowd of Jewish people in the first century, where it was the religious leaders at that time. This blaming them for things that happened thousands of years ago is part of what is known as the mythical Jew conspiracy, where Jews are blamed for anything that ever happened. There's a thin line between religious bigotry and political bigotry, I, I believe. And let me let me tell you guys uh, how this works. Some people have a lot of problems with the Jewish community during ancient times, during this time, during modern times. And they like to disparage the, the Jewish leaders. It includes not only Caiaphas and Annas, the two priests at the time of the trial of Jesus, but also the Talmudic rabbis the Jewish sages who wrote the, the Talmud. In a radio show called The Bible Answer Man, someone called Hank Hanegraaff, uh, a Christian apologist, to ask him about how he felt about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And he said, I am not pro-Israel, but I'm pro-justice. And in a lot of cases, people assume that Jews are not pro-justice because they support Israel, because they don't like what happened to in the state of Israel, and that's where the anti-Semitic tropes come back to haunt the Jewish community. Another thing sometimes is brought up is that the Jewish community is willfully trying to undermine the teachings of Christ, and that they're trying to withhold the prophecies or the acceptance of Jesus from the people. I've written in response to this because it just seems very strange, but um, what i like to share is that Jews don't accept the claims of the New Testament mostly because of what is known in theological circles as theodicy. And that is the idea that there is suffering in the world. 
The concept of the Messiah in ancient times and even today has to do with the restoring of the idyllic place, either Eden or the theocratic kingdom in the in the Holy Land. So when they see that things are still in chaos, where there's war, there, there's uh, famine and plagues and things like that, religious Jews feel that that was not changed, that you know Jesus lived and died and things are still pretty bad for everybody. So it's not specifically against Jesus, it's against the situation that we encounter as human beings. So um, just trying to spell more myths that, that are brought up. And the one that I ran across this week, there's a passage that uh, enemies of Jesus are being blamed for the blood of Abel, was the son of uh, Adam and Eve that was killed by Cain. Now, as we were talking about Jews being blamed for killing their prophets, there's a passage in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 11, verse 51, where Jesus says the following, quote, starts off at 50, quote, Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And then he goes into uh, a diatribe against the, um, the teachers of Torah at that time. And chapter 11:52, quote, Woe to you experts in the law, because you have taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered, and you have hindered those who were entering. And then when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely and to beseech him with questions, wanting to catch him in something he might say. So he was he was fighting with the Pharisees when this happened. He has woes against them. One of the experts of the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, and you experts in the law, woe to you because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry. And you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you because of your build tombs for the prophets and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve what your ancestors did. They killed the prophets and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some whom they will kill and others they will persecute. And that quote is from... There's nowhere to be found in the Bible. So the difference between Jews and Christians is that Jews see Israel, the Jewish people, as sacrosanct. And sacrosanct is a fancy word for holy or hallowed, respected, unimpeachable, unchangeable, invulnerable, untouchable, inalienable, too special, too important or valuable to be interfered with. So that's really the difference. If something's sacrosanct, you try to think of it in a positive light. If something is not sacrosanct, you can insult it and talk trash all day long. So Christians see the church as sacrosanct. The Jewish people see the Jewish people as sacrosanct. It's a never-ending battle. Before we run out of time, um, there's a, a few Bible passages from the New Testament that I want to discuss. So it seems like uh, in the manifesto, he's alluding to John 16, 2. And when Jesus says that you, you'll be kicked out of the, uh, the synagogues, I, I think he says that in Matthew and the Sermon on the Mount as well. Um, and, and this guy or other people take that to mean that, that Jews are persecuting Christians nowadays. Is, that's a completely... There are people who even wonder if, if that was truly happening in the time of Jesus or is it something that happened later and then it was uh, reworked into the words of Jesus to to pinpoint at the division between different Jewish groups. But um, 
how can someone with, within the context understand um, this form of persecution and not take it like personal? Well, the very next verse, okay, John sixteen two. You know, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. Verse three, and they will do these things because they have not known the Father, nor me. So, if you're a Christian and you want to be like Christ, and you want to be like the Father, the God of Israel, the God of the Jew, and the God of the Christian, you don't do these things. It's very plain. It's not a conundrum. You know, again, it's, it's kind of a good, let's just lift verse 2 out of that and then, you know, run, run you know, roughshod over it. And this is the way it's typically done. I mean, again, we, we shouldn't be surprised with this. This is the way it's typically done. But the way, you know, I, I would, again, if I have somebody quote this, you know, to me, I'm going to say, hey, you know, can we throw verse 3 in there? You know, because this is what you're not supposed to do. So let, let, let's try not to just, you know, rape the text. Um, but uh, again, that, that's probably if I'm in a cranky mood, I would say rape the text. But, you know, again, I, I run into so much of this stuff that it's, you know, I'm with you. It's disturbing. It, it, it's all too frequent. It's not like every time I hop on, you know, hop on the web, I see this stuff, but it's all too frequent. You know, and, and it's just, it's a, it's a shame that people are so biblically illiterate you know, that, that this is what it's come to, this sort of proof texting. You know, and historically, yeah, you know, Christians did persecute Jews. Jews persecuted Christians. Jews persecuted Jews. Christians persecuted other Christians. I mean, it, you know, everybody's persecuting some, you know, either the, the, the outsider, the, the rival, or, or even there are people in their own group. You know, and again, it all goes back to, where, you know, how does this image God? You know, how, how does this, you know, create the kind of community that it should be really clear that God wanted it as far back as Eden. Okay, how does how does it create this thing that God, you know, prompted God's original desire to even create humanity? How does it do that? But see, that's a big picture question. That's a that's an upper level, you know, question that uh, unfortunately too many people don't ask these sorts of things. They don't, you know, look for the the wider biblical theological context again. What we would call the meta narrative. Of scripture, they don't bother with that. You know, I, 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 there's this thought I want to think, there's this person I hate, there's this belief I want to have, and by golly, I got my Bible verse for it. So don't bother me. You know, that that's just the situation we're in. Okay, so then we go to this is someone that I found, and I find it super uh, abuse of the text. So you tell me if I'm wrong. So in Romans eleven twenty eight. Most uh, translation it says, for as regard of the gospel, they're enemies on account of you, but as regards of election, beloved, and on account of the patriarchs. This is speaking of Jews who don't believe in Jesus. But in the Oxford uh, translation, as well as in a couple of other ones, it says not, they're, they're not enemies of the gospel. It says they're enemies of God. And I asked one of my... Um, Which is, I've never heard of the Oxford translation. What? What is that? You know, people from uh, from Oxford, like it's it's the one that scholars use. Well, I, I'm I'm a scholar. And I've never heard of it. <laughs> so new Oxford. I've never heard of it. But there's a, quite a few that, that do the same. Um, the new Oxford annotated Bible it comes with the apocrypha. Uh, anno, anno, what what's annotated in it? 
uh, it has their, you know, whatever scholars they have, their little um, summaries of each chapter. But looking at it in the Bible Hub, it even says um, good news translation because they rejected the good news. The Jews are God's enemies for the sake of you Gentiles. So it doesn't say that in the Greek and they throw it in as, as an a- afterthought. That's the, the good news translation. Oh, the good. It's, it's in the contemporary English version. It's, it's, yeah, I want to look at the good news here. And quite, quite a few of the, of them. And for me, it's like, do they really have to like, you know, bring it home and just go all the way to add to the text? It's not in the Greek. And, um, and to me, those are the, the errors or the... Because anti-Semitism is, is not based on, on reality. It's based on preconceived notions and, and, and reading into stuff. So for someone to take, uh, a, you know, you, in a Christian perspective, it could even be like a beautiful passage that says, um, you know, they're beloved by God and one day they'll see the light or something like that. To suddenly be like, oh no, by the way, they're all condemned. They're all enemies of God. It's like it doesn't say that, but let's read, read it. Read it again in the Good News translation, just so I can hear it again. Because they rejected the Good News, the Jews are God's enemies for the sake of you Gentiles. Is that the end of the verse? And then it goes to the next one. But because of God's choice, they are His friends because of their ancestors. So they're enemies, but they're also friends. They're frenemies, and. Um, so, but the Oxford one pretty much leaves it at um, the Waymouth New Testament. In relation to the good news, the Jews are God's enemies for your sakes. But in relation to God's choice, they're dearly beloved for the sake of their forefathers. At the end, it kind of softens, but if you just focus on their God's enemies, it's not even in the text. So, so they're they're creating their own theology within the text. Yeah, yeah, they they are. What's really I mean, you're, you're right, you know, the God's enemies thing, it's not in the text, but even their translation, here's why I wanted you to read it again, you know, as far as God's choice, you could say, well, choice is the same as election, but it, it really, I mean, the term there is election, and that is a loaded term with the Old Testament. I mean, that, that, that there's a special relationship between God and Israel, and, and this whole concept of election. So even the Good News translation, taking that out, or, or using some sort of more neutral word, that hurts too. You know, it, 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 it takes away any sense of, the, of, of God's relationship, you know, to, to his people in the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you've, you've, this, is, this is a good mini commercial for not using the Good News Translation. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty egregious. It really is. You know, and there, I mean, for your listeners, you know, don't, don't get too discouraged with this. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there are no perfect translations, but this is a good exercise. Uh, I always recommend, because I get this question a lot, you know, what translation should I use? You know, and after I sort of joke and say, well, the best translation is the one you'll actually read. Uh, I, I know that that's not actually true. So I always recommend read from more than one. Because if you get a substantive disagreement, like you've pointed out here, between the, the GNT and something else. That is an important thing to notice, and that's a place to drill down in, in your own personal study, and, and you'll find out, as you said, where are they getting this God's enemies thing because God's not in the text there. You know, I mean, this is a good exercise 
you know, to be able to do this. But I, I'm sorry again to, to tell your audience, like I'm sorry to tell other audiences, tongue in cheek here. But when it comes to Bible study, you have to remember a four-letter word, and that is work. Okay, it takes some work. It takes some commitment, you know, to to ferret things like this out. But a good first step is is look at things in more than one translation, and you'll spot these things. Now, I, I don't know, you know, who translated this and a lot of these committee translations, you know, I know like the new American standard was famous for like having their translators names, not published. Like it was a big secret and that's kind of unique. Most, most other translations are, are, are fine with that. So I don't know if the person who translated this was, you know, some sort of, you know, closet anti-Semite or, or, I mean, who knows, but I could say that's pretty careless. You know, somebody took your translation and now look, look, look what they can do with it. That was careless. So I heard one time, and the the reason we we uh, we started the discussion is because I wanted to talk about the passage where it says um, that it's uh, Revelation two nine. I know your tribulation and poverty, but rich you are, and the slander of those claiming Jews to be themselves. This is internal linear, so that's why this sound uh, properly uh, and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. And I heard one time that um, somebody who was criticizing the New Testament was saying. It's interesting that in this passage, the word for for a, a, a bed Knesset or kahila for for a place of gathering of Jews is used as a synagogue. It, it's a synagogue in the Greek and it's a synagogue in the English translation. But there are other parts in the New Testament where the term synagogue is used for a, a congregation of, of Jewish Christians or um, God fears. And they don't use the term synagogue. They use church or they use something else. But when it comes down to synagogue of Satan, they purposely leave it there. Uh, have you heard of that? And is that also uh, an abuse of the text? Well, it, it, well, it is an abuse. And it, you just you just pointed out one reason it is. You, there is no clear demarcation of the term, you know, synagogue as only being with, you know, coupled with the term Satan. You have you have synagogues being referred to just generically elsewhere with, you know, they're not bad. You know, they have nothing to do with Satan. You know, they're they're just they're synagogues. They're they're gatherings. You know, and you could have more than one word again describe that that community. But someone trying to make an argument that that synagogue, you know, this is these are the only you know the only place it occurs is Revelation two nine and Revelation three nine. It's associated with Satan. Okay, um, that's what you'd have to argue, which is just bunk. I mean, all you, all you need is a, is a concordance to overturn that. So, yeah, I mean that that that's a that's an abuse of the text. I'll tell you what else is an abuse of the text is in that verse, the reference to Jews is actually positive. You know, the the, the Jews are being you know eudaios there in Greek is actually being contrasted. You know, with this synagogue of Satan. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the the whole point of what you know the writer is saying is that you know the the term Jews there is is positive. He the writer wants the people in this particular synagogue to be in this other category. Wants them to be Jew. They they say they're Jews, but they're not. They're over here in the synagogue. He wants them to be in the category called Jews. He's approving of that category. Now, that takes us into, well, who are the Jews that, that John is talking about? And, you know, you, there are actually four or five options for this. You know, this term, you know, was used in 
the early centuries for a person born a Jew, just an ethnic thing. You can, it's used in pagans who convert to Judaism, you know, whether they're an official proselyte or not. They, they, they were called Jews. It's just somebody from Judea, whether they were ethnically, you know, from, from one of the tribes of Israel or not. You know, they get called Jews. You know, I, I think it's fair to say, because, you know, we're in the New Testament here, is John wants these people, you know, to be, you know, what like he is. John is a Jew. He wants them to believe, you know, in, in Jesus as the Messiah, you know, to be, you know, a, a Jew that's a real Jew, you know, circumcised of the heart, you know, that kind of thing. Um, it, <laughs> the New Testament writers are not running around, you know, saying that, you know, all Jews are awful people and, you know, all this kind of stuff. They They want them to, you know, sort of be in the same category with them accepting their Messiah because they, you know, the New Testament writers believe Jesus is the Messiah. You know, the, the, other, the other thing that makes this an, an abuse is that, hey, Jesus called Peter Satan. You know, get behind me, Satan. Does, does that mean Jesus was anti-apostolic? He was anti-Peter? No. That the term itself just means you're on the side of the opposition. It's a loaded term for us because of the way it gets used in, in other passages. But, but Jesus calls Peter that directly. And, we've, and it's very clear, you know, in the gospel stories that Jesus still loves Peter. And he, even after Peter betrays him, he comes to Peter and, and you know, befriends him and redeems him. You know, he, he loves Peter. He's not anti-Peter. He's not anti-apostolic. He says, you're, you're in the opposition here. And that, that's how, that was a term that they could use to denote the opposition. But if you're, you know, if somebody can easily take this and say, oh, you know, the Jews are all satanic, you know, and then make this lame synagogue argument that, like, this is the way the term is used when it's not. Like, who's going to check? You know, and, and I th people do think, that, like, who's going to check? You know, it, <laughs> I'm just going to say it because I'm going to say it because I need to say it. I want to say it. I like the way it sounds. You know, or, or maybe they're parroting something else. The, the Christian and the New Testament writers here is what I'm thinking of specifically. Yeah, they can be mad when they're persecuted. Sure, they can. But they're going to view the Jews as the loyal opposition. These are the people of God. We want them to be, you know, to be Jews of the circumcised heart, to believe, you know, in the Messiah. You know, Paul, my heart's desire, you know, is, is, is that Israel you know, my people, you know, would come to the Lord. I mean, this, this isn't hatred. It's, it's a disagreement of opinion, to be sure. But, you know, it, it's not anti-Semitism. I mean, the problem in our culture is we take, and this is going to get worse, you know, we, we're, we're descending into, into sort of a paganized tribal culture, but just a bunch of tribes, where any disagreement is parsed as hate, you know, I'm old enough to remember that that's just absurd. You know, you, 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 know, you, you grow up, you disagree with people in your own family. Does that mean you hate them? You know, disagree with, you know, your neighbor over it. Doesn't, th these two things are not completely overlapping synonymous ideas, but they're treated as though they are. You know, so, uh, again, you know, I don't want to just, you know, ramble on here, but I don't think we, I don't think we have any reason – first of all, and I think we're without excuse. If we start to, to cherry pick, you know, the New Testament as a justification for hating someone, 
that's just unchristian. It's unchristlike. Um, you can get mad at somebody. Yep, I understand that. We're all human. We're going to have dis- disagreements. You know, but at the end of the day, you know, you're not supposed to hate people. You're not supposed to seek their demise. In both Testaments, Hebrew Bible, New Testament, that is a mark of ungodliness. You know, it just it's it's wicked. You know, I don't know what else to call it. And I'll throw this into. I think it's a really bad idea for Christians to have a negative. And I'm not. I'm even going a little bit beyond the, the anti-Semitism here. I think it's a really bad idea for Christians generally to have a negative view of of we'll just say Jews here, just to to, to isolate them specifically, because. You know, newsflash, the culture is becoming more pagan all the time. You know, we're, we're actually going to need each other. Christians who are, are serious about living out real Christianity, we're going to need, you know, Jews, and they're going to need us. And because we're going to be the, the, the ones who are still God-fearing in our culture, in an increasingly pagan tribal culture, that wants nothing to do with either of us. So I think I think it's a really bad idea, again, to fragment ourselves, even within the Christian community. We, we see so much fragmentation. This is a really bad idea with the culture trending the way it is. I think, I think we need to develop, we need to do more things intentionally so that we see that we're all in this together. Again, we're the, we're the God-fearers here. We need to stick together. You know, uh, and, and just, you know, be in each other's corner because we're going to need that. We're just going to need it. And it's the right thing to do. Well, I appreciate you um, taking a stand because, um, you know, one thing that is disheartening is that whenever you bring up um, what happened during the, the Holocaust where many Christians did not speak out because of fear or because they were too entangled with the government, uh, everybody always brings up uh, Diedrich Bonhoeffer and and what all and what nobody will tell you is that that was one guy out of thousands so if if people can be uh, if we had more of him then we could um keep this cyclical thing that is happening again where people are being scapegoated they they're being um you know lied about slandered and there and there's like this this um you were talking about what makes supremacists uh do what they do is that they, they've been pinned against other groups. Be, they have their own issues and their own struggles. And instead of dealing with those struggles, they're blaming on someone else and, and building up that hatred. So I appreciate you coming on my show and having uh, this discussion and, and bringing some clarity to things that can be distorted, abused, or completely falsified to, uh, to push an agenda that, as you say, it's not consistent with with the teachings of of, of the founder of, of Christianity and this faith that is very powerful and it has a lot of influence in the world. And you know, we hear the Pope and other people talk about little issues, but we would like for for uh, leaders within your community to take strong stands regarding issues like this one. So we appreciate you uh, doing that for us. Yeah. Well, thank you for having me on. And um, so uh, keep all your good work, and uh, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you. I also wanted to respond to the, the lack of information regarding the subject of
is the New Testament anti-Semitic because by bringing up the New Testament passages, then it really builds a case against the New Testament and uh, something that is accused by some people of being. Um, no credible scholar thinks the New Testament is anti-Semitic. Instead, they would say that it is anti-Jewish. The problem with that is that Judaism as a institution was established to that point. There was many Judaisms at the time of Jesus. And so it's more of a sectarian, uh, antagonistic, um, historical narrative. And being sectarian, it disparages other religious groups that don't agree with them. Um, many people try to defend the New Testament by claiming that the Hebrew Bible is antagonistic against the Jewish people for the rebellion or whatever they see. But that's a poorly developed argument because it supports a biased reading of the Bible. Uh, the Israelite prophets were harsh towards the apostate members of their community, um, not just like Jesus, but as integral part of the leadership system of that time. Jesus is usually uh, shown as like an outsider. Even though he's from Galilee and Judea, he's, he comes in to uh, random towns and busting people's heads, uh, per se. And um, he fights against his detractors. Um, most people who are very sensitive about this because of the persecution that's happened from it, they would say that, um, that his words condemn all Jews and there is no division between the Jews at that time, the specific religious groups, and people now, because that's how it's been interpreted. Um, so the theology um, of anti-Semitism is one of racial or ethnic prejudice. But religious anti-Semitism is the idea that Jews are incapable of redemption due to their sinful nature, something medieval Catholics and some Protestants at the time of the Nazis believed. Even when Jews became Christian, they needed to be destroyed because they were inherently evil. So, um, in the German Protestants, uh, very few people lifted a finger to intervene uh, with the Nazi uh, propaganda and um, agenda. And they had watered down the, the Bible so much, the theologians before that, that um, it became a true part of Christianity to hate Judaism and to see Jesus not as a, as a Jew but as an, a Galilean Aryan somehow. Um, so the literal interpretation of the Bible uh, is based on the eyes of the beholder because people can emphasize one part or the others. There's um, an anti-Semitic provocateur in Austin named Texi Mars who um, says a lot out of the same verbiage as the individual we're talking about. And what he says is that... Um, he attributes um, also the death of the prophets to all Jews, and he infuses uh, some of the the conflictive um, soliloquies of Jesus to modern day people. So that goes back to how the Bible can be dangerous on the in the wrong hands by people who are purposely manipulating it to condemn and to disparage some people. So, again, this is a very heavy subject. We've been uh, talking about it for 
two shows. Um, we're going to move on to a different subject next time. But I just wanted to um, close the show uh, thanking you for your patience to go through all these very um, disturbing uh, ideas and for us to keep um, working through, like Dr. Heiser would say, um, these things and to act like they don't exist creates more problems than to actually um, take them head on. So again, thank you for listening to The Mystic and the Skeptic. If you have any questions, please email me at mysticandskeptic, or one word, at gmail.com. You can also go to our Facebook page or our WordPress website for uh, more information. And the WordPress website is mysticandskeptic.wordpress.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of The Mystic and the Skeptic.